I used to draw really weird frogs. Having never had much skill for drawing, my amphibian approximations consisted of bizarrely shaped heads with two Wellington boot-shaped legs sticking out of them and nary a body in sight. Fascinated by the cartoons I obsessively devoured as a child, I always fantasised that I would one day create a character that would come to life and have adventures. But as I grew older, and my frogs refused to get any less weird, I wrote off this dream as unrealisable. After all, I could never create anything as intricately beautiful as Disney's extraordinary eye candy, as comically appealing as Tex Avery's wild tape-prone wolves, or as fluidly hypnotic as the Fleischer Brothers' rubber-limbed, perpetually dancing characters. Time passed. My frogs were forgotten. But in this amphibiousless interim, my love for animation grew beyond formative adoration of classic Hollywood cartoons, and I began to realise that the way characters looked wasn't always as important as what they did, how they acted, the stories in which they were engaged. Francesco Mazzera's claymation series, Red and Blue, starred two shapeless lumps of plasticine whose interactions were as vivid as any characters I'd previously encountered, regardless of their amorphousness. Chuck Jones and Maurice Noble's The Dot and the Line showed that an engaging love story could be told using only shapes and squiggles. Perhaps my greatest revelation was Chris Hinton's astonishing Flux, which captures no less than the very nature of existence using hastily scrawled representations of human beings against a plain white background. While one online critic deemed Hinton's film to be what cartoons would look like if they were animated by four-year-olds, this betrays a limited understanding of the extraordinarily flexible boundaries that make animation such an invigorating medium. So maybe there is hope for my weird little frogs yet, although I think I'll experiment with some scripts before I invest in a light box. Hello, I'm Andy Golding, and welcome to the third in a short series of very special episodes of Spoiler, in which the rest of the team have taken a holiday, allowing me to talk to some of my heroes from the world of animation. In this episode, I'll be talking to Canadian animators Wendy Tilby and Amanda Forbis. Although they have worked separately on several films, including Wendy's Oscar-nominated 1991 short Strings, Wendy and Amanda clearly enjoy collaborating, and their work as a team has yielded two of the most fascinating and acclaimed animated shorts of recent times, in the shape of When the Day Breaks and Wildlife, both of which were also Oscar-nominated, as well as winning a clutch of other awards, including an Annie, a Genie, and a Palme d'Or at Cannes. Wendy and Amanda are also huge animation fans themselves, hosting the annual Bleak Midwinter Animation Festival in their hometown of Calgary, to which, as you'll hear later, I'm now lucky enough to have been personally invited. Can anyone spare the airfare to Canada? I started out by asking Wendy and Amanda how they first met. We first met in art school in Vancouver at the what was then called the Emily Carr College of Art and Design. Uh, we met in 80. I think, and uh, Wendy was in fourth year and I was in second year, and uh, we just kind of hit it off. I certainly admired her work. I don't know if she had any thoughts about mine, but uh, <laughs> of course I did. <laughs> but it, it was years later before we actually worked together, although Amanda did help me finish my student film, or she was helped me a bit in the cutting room, I remember. Yeah, ah, so, so the early seeds of uh, working together creatively were, were planted there then. I guess so, yeah. I think so, but it, yeah, it wasn't until 1995, so I guess 10 years later, when I was living in Montreal and Amanda was still in Vancouver, that we decided to give a 
well, I thought it might be a good idea for her to come and work with me on When the Day Breaks. So sure. I moved to Montreal at that point. Sure. And you, yeah, you mentioned When the Day Breaks there, which leads nicely into into my next question. Now, this is the first the first film that you uh, you work together to uh, direct. And it's a film that uses a, a cast of sort of semi-anthropomorphic animals to explore themes of urban alienation and and how we're, we're all connected uh, more than we might realise or even wish to acknowledge. Uh, I mean, that that's what I got from it. Am I anywhere near the mark with that interpretation, would you say? Very much so. And I don't think uh, I realised it at the time, but it wasn't until probably until When the Daybreaks was finished that I realised it was in a certain way, a kind of sequel or a continuation of the themes that were explored in my previous film, Strings. Sure, yeah. Strings was really about uh, the connections between people in cities, but it was specifically about within one building and um, sort of the nature of strangers and the intimacy that we have just by being connected through the physicalness of the building itself, yeah. the, the walls and the ceiling, floor, etc. And so When the Day Breaks is kind of an expansion of that. So it's more about the whole city and how we're all connected, even if we're strangers. And it's a, it's one of the things I love about this film is that I, it took me a few watches to, to really tap into those themes, but they, the more attention you can give it, the more it kind of opens up and becomes more apparent. But I think the first, the first time I saw it, I was just knocked out by the visuals what sort of techniques did you use to capture this sort of striking painterly style that, that you use in the film? Well, it was, it was a, a fairly complex technique, really. Um, we would shoot live action. On video? On video, yeah. We would print out using a very specialized VHS deck at the time, one that, that could single frame. We would print out sort of selected images of, of the action because we didn't just... We didn't just do a one-to-one ratio. We, we sped the action up or changed it or manipulated it in different ways. Uh, so we'd print that out using a video printer, which was a device mostly used in medical imaging at the time. It's you know where new uh, mothers would take home a, an image of their, their baby from ultrasounds and that yeah. kind of thing. For some reason, the film board had one of these. And so we would print it out, and then we would photocopy those images. And then we would paint over them and draw over them using pencils and oil sticks. We would subtract details and add others. So we take out all the information we didn't want, but then we would add things like ears and snouts and glasses and whiskers and yeah. all that thing, and take out backgrounds and. Wow, and it, it sounds it sounds like quite a, a complex technique. Is this a, a technique that you pioneered yourselves? I think uh, it was partly inspired by uh, Jean Luigi Tocafondo who, I don't know if you're, if you're aware of his work, but it was definitely inspiring. Mm. But he worked a little bit differently, where I think he shot photos off a TV screen, <laughs> you know, but from old movies and things. Yeah. So it was a similar thing, but then he would paint on top of them. So it's different, but uh, a related technique, but we kind of took it in a, a different direction. And I think what was fun about it was that it, the, the images themselves were very contained, and they were they're small. We worked very small, usually about three by four inches. And um, it's nice to respond to an image that's already there rather than drawing from scratch. So it kind of gave you uh, a foundation to start with, yeah. which was I, know, I, I found kind of enjoyable. But it was also 
a little bit like a straight-ahead technique, almost like scratching on film, because uh, a lot of it's just eyeballing and, and using references like, you know, here's where, a, let's say, the a tree in the original footage is, and that would be our reference point for drawing in something in the background, or here's where this human person's nose starts, and that's where we'll sort of put roughly put a beak. Or <laughs> yeah. It had a kind of a looseness of scratch on film. Wow, well, it's a, I mean, it certainly came out looking looking fantastic. And, and it, it went on to be uh, Oscar nominated, didn't it? Which, uh, I mean, Wendy, you'd you'd been Oscar nominated once already for Strings, hadn't you? And uh, I mean, how how does that feel to uh, for your film to be Oscar nominated? Well, it's very gratifying. It's very affirming to have uh, have it recognised in that way. Sure. It's 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 exciting. It's it's sort of a a funny thing because it's um, that particular accolade gets a lot of a lot more fuss than others. Yeah. And wh- whether it's warranted or not is another question. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one has to be prepared for the fuss, let me tell you that. Um, now, one, uh, one element of uh, When the Day Breaks that, that isn't always acknowledged by people, uh, but I think it's, it's definitely in there, is, is humour. I think there's the, the, these sort of key notes in the story are, are tragic and profound, but... I think that there's a lot of lovely little jokes in there, like the the pig peeling potatoes and throwing the potato in the bin and keeping the skins and that sort of thing. Was this an, an element of the, the writing that you, you felt was important to be in there, or did it just kind of ar- arise naturally during the creative process? Uh, it, it was important to us, but uh, I would say that it, it did arrive naturally. Yeah. Um, you know, the jokes came up as we went along, as we were brainstorming, and we would joke about, oh, she she peels the potatoes and keeps the skins and then we'd laugh and then we'd put it in. Yeah. Or the, uh, the chicken's three pointed hats. <laughs> yeah. Like that. They're all off the cuff and then, and then we preserve them. And, you know, it's a, it's a lovely way to work because you've, <laughs> you've made yourself laugh and, and then you have only have to have faith over the years as you get completely sick of it that it actually was kind of in the first place. Yeah. But when we started working on it, we had human characters and it was not a musical and and we found that it it felt very um just very earnest and very serious yeah. and uh so the, in, in a sense both the, the the addition of music and the animals was another another element of humor added and it just felt a lot stronger to us it it felt uh, it was much more of a pleasure to work on for one thing yeah and um you know i, I think there's a legitimate point that sadness is beauty can be beautifully counterpointed by humor mm-hmm. that you know, humor is a critical thing in, in moments of profound sadness. Where are you, very blue? Are you missing me too? I'm at ease on the breeze, very, very blue. Well, the, the next film that you, you made together then uh, was uh, Wildlife, which I, I just absolutely love. I think it's a masterpiece. Coming from a Brit, we appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, when you initially made it, did it, it had quite a, a slow uptake of, uh, of reaction in Europe, didn't it? It did. I, it certainly never had the success that When the Daybreaks had, and I, I think that there were a number of people who were disappointed by it because it wasn't more like when the day breaks. Do you think that's fair to say? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, yeah, it's more of a slow burn. I Well, I think there are probably several reasons, but one of them is that the story is very regional. Sure, yeah. Could you just explain a little bit about, about the story? I mean, it, it focuses on remittance men, doesn't it? Could you just explain what, what that term means? Well, they were um, around the turn of the 20th century. They were young men who, for want of better to do at home, were sent abroad by their, their families. And they were usually upper middle class or upper class young men who... I guess with all the societal changes at that point, you know, that um, meritocracy was starting to take hold and you couldn't just become a doctor or an army officer, you actually had to have qualifications. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> couldn't be a minister, or there were fewer openings to become a minister because the church was not as dominant as it had been. So there were a lot of second sons who didn't have a lot to do and then they'd just go and get themselves in trouble. So they were sent out to Canada with a remittance. Here at the dawn of the 20th century, young men from fine families all over this mighty island are crossing the seas for adventure in Canada. Armed with the pluck and decency that make this empire great, these young lions expect to make their fortunes in the colonies and shed light in the cultural darkness. They were quite infamous for being, I, I guess you could say, layabouts and, <laughs> you know, the grasshoppers who fiddled while the ants put all the, the food away for the winter. And then, I, it, I mean, historically, the fact was that most of them went and fought in the World War, First World War and then never came back. But, you know, we were really struck by how they had just disappeared out of the, any knowledge yeah. in popular culture. They're just not known. And they should be, because this, this city in particular, for a long time, was called the city that remittance men built. This is Calgary. Calgary, yeah. Sure, yeah. Because they, they spent money. They had money, and they spent it, and, and uh, they knew how to have a good time. And Calgary has completely forgotten this fact, and we think we're all cowboys and pioneers. <laughs> and the Englishmen have been forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> So that was that what attracted you to the subject then? That it was a, a very sort of regional subject and a story that that had rarely been told. Definitely the rarely been told part. Um, and in this part of the world, we tend to believe we have no history. So that was kind of an interesting aspect to it as well. But we also have it a little bit in our bones because um, both Wendy's grandparents and my grandparents came out from England to farm, and, and I don't think that they would be called aristocracy by any stretch, but, you know, they were sort of nice middle-class people, and then they just got sumped out here, just absolutely sumped and uh, lost everything, essentially, and had to climb back out of that. So it's funny because it was only after we had finished it that I, I, I sort of really, it really registered to me, into me, that, that this was a very personal story. It, it kind of came down from our parents. It was very much a clash of civilization with wilderness, because I think it really was a shock. It would have been a shock for them to come here and see how little was here, and that it, it wasn't as they had been told it would be with these kind of bucolic farms. It was really, really harsh, and the, the weather is unforgiving so it's that's kind of interesting because the, the landscape here really is dramatic yeah and kind of dramatic in its nothingness <laughs> yeah it's also a, a little bit a number of years ago we read we both read a book called the last place on earth about uh, the race to the, the south pole between scott and amundsen and um we were very interested in that sort of sad and kind of heartbreaking um ineptitude that Scott demonstrated and that our young man demonstrates yeah. um, as opposed to those who are prepared and 
you know, it just felt like Scott just felt like, well, he was an Englishman, so he ought to do just fine. You know, it was almost as though it, it was a done deal for him. You know, just that folly. We found the folly very interesting as well. Dearest mother and father, it is unspeakably cold at present, and spring is no more than a thin promise. I must confess that things have become rather dreary here at the ranch. I'm just quite surprised to hear you say that uh, people that were disappointed that it wasn't more like when the day breaks because to me it feels like it, it has a similar sort of uh, combination of moods and the, the, there's definite humour in it and and tragedy and things about how people connect and it, I can very much tell that it, it's your work not just from the, the visual element but from, from the writing and I'm, I'm surprised that more people didn't uh, draw that comparison. I don't know if they didn't uh, sort of see some similarities. I think the more we, the, the longer it was out and the more we sort of discussed it, I think people definitely see the, the links and certainly the, the look and the technique are different, but they're painterly and um, uh, textural. That's certainly something in common, but there's also a thematic yeah. relationship in that um, wildlife, again, is kind of an inverse of of when the day breaks in that the character is a very urban person who is then marooned out in the middle of nowhere. So it's kind of the the opposite sensation of what the characters are in when the day breaks. Yeah. They're all they're all yearning for the ideal of the country. Yeah. Or at least the pig is at a certain point imagining a simpler life. You know, the the hairiness of the city gets her down and then our poor young guy, all he, he you can tell all he wants to do is go back to London. At least I hope you can tell he, <laughs> that's what he wants. Yeah. Well, there's a, m- a moment in When the Day Breaks, which y- you may not remember, but there's a, a scene right after the accident uh, where we see the chickens' life strewn out on the road. Oh, and yeah. and um, there's, a, there's a little moment where we... It's a little bit more colorful, but where we see a pasture and horses. And, and the idea of that particular scene, which was actually a, a little bit of Super 8 footage that I had shot for kind of an earlier idea, but what we did was we printed it out and painted it. And it, what it's meant to be is a moment of nostalgia, or it, it's a sense of where the chicken has gone. So you can think of it as the happy hunting grounds or yes. heaven, but it's also to suggest a yearning for, as Amanda was just saying, the kind of a perfect life, which was maybe more rural. And because these are animals, it's sort of maybe where we've all come from. It's where uh, where life was perfect. And uh, people don't get hit by cars in, in the country. But the, of course, the truth is that's not true. That yeah. The country is equally dangerous, and then wildlife kind of proves that. <laughs> <laughs> Now, for, uh, in wildlife, you, uh, you used computers a, a little more as well, didn't you, in the, the process? Yeah. Was that a, uh, a technique that you, you learned through your commercial work? It was sort of the opposite. Well, no, I shouldn't say that. Um, we, I think we started yeah. using, com- yeah. using uh, computers in earnest through commercial work, definitely. Yeah. But the, the technique itself was something that, that we worked through for wildlife, uh, and it was agony. Well, because we tried very, very hard to to do it completely in the computer, or that's what we wanted to do, because it's a lot simpler and uh, less time consuming. So we try, we did a lot of trial and error with different looks, different um, techniques, and we played around a lot with the uh, software called Painter because we felt that it needed to be textural and needed to be painterly. Yeah. 
but we were never satisfied, so we ended up animating in the computer, printing out the images, painting them, and scanning them back in, which was crazy. And we, we have since then imitated that technique in the computer because, I mean, the software has improved so much since then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the painterly techniques are much easier in the computer, although I still don't think they're the same. No. But, uh, yeah, it, it, it's that funny thing of what you do by instinct with the paintbrush. You had to try to replicate by these sort of very specific and fussy little means in the painting program. But as, as Wendy says, you know, now there's, there, are, there are a lot of really good brushes and the, and the programs are better and you can mix paints and all kinds of great stuff. And it's true, it's still not the same, but I, I don't think we'd even consider printing it out. And yeah, even though painting's more fun. Yeah. Doesn't make sense, so. Yeah, sad. Life's too short. Yeah. <laughs> Now, music plays a, a really important part in, in your films. Uh, I was wondering if you, do you always have the musical accompaniments you want in mind? Or, uh, is it, again, is that something that emerges as, as the film takes shape? It is extremely important, uh, or sound in general is. And I think the, the, for us, the sooner we establish a sense of that, the better. We tend to start, I mean, I'll say for the, um, certainly with wildlife, because we were we started that being computer literate and working in the computer, we were working with images and sound right from the beginning simultaneously. So they they form at the same time. And they, and with when the day breaks, when we kind of came upon the idea that we would that that it would be a little bit like a musical or structured like a musical with three distinct pieces, that was a a revel- revelation and a revolution, I guess, in our thinking, because we then decided, we started using guide track music, and then we were working with Judith Gruberstitzer, the, our friend and um, composer, and we said, what we want you to do is compose three different pieces of music, almost like three different songs, really. Yeah. And we didn't want her to work two images, because at that point, we really didn't have anything much. I mean, we had some, some shots, but they were still sketches at that point. But she, uh, using our guide tracks as, a, as inspiration, then wrote the three pieces of music. And then we, we, we figured out, you know, how, well, Amanda and I wrote the lyrics for the ones that have lyrics, the, the first one and the third one. And Judith wrote the music, and it was recorded, and then we edited and animated to that. Oh, I mean, we really like responding to music. It's, yeah. it's really fun. So it's, it's kind of like having a foundation for the structure of the film at the beginning. I, I can't imagine actually making a film and then having it scored at the end. I, I can't imagine how you could edit a film without it. It does a lot to set yeah. the tone as well. Mm-hmm. It, it sets the tone for what we're doing, and it gives you sustenance. To, to get you through it. But, but the, yeah, and the, and the music was really fun. It was because so much of it is not fun. So, like a lot of it, yeah, it's <laughs> such a grind and gets so tedious. And recording the music, particularly on When the Day Breaks, was, it was like instant gratification in a field where you get very little of that. And recording in this beautiful old studio with Martha Wainwright and um, these fabulous musicians. And uh, we had a singer named, uh, named Heim Tannenbaum mm-hmm. who the song at the end and it was just lovely it was really it was 
really great. It was a reward. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, I wanted to uh, to ask you uh, briefly each about a project that you, you worked on separately from each other. Uh, Wendy, I wanted to uh, ask you about your film Strings. Now, this was uh, used a technique of painting on glass, didn't it? Yeah. And this this is a method that I've, I've encountered before in uh, in works by Caroline Leaf and uh, Alexander Petrov and people like that. And uh, it always creates such beautiful results, which it does in strings. But I've always thought it sounds like such a, a painstaking process. Is it? Is it a more complex process than other types of animation you've been involved with? I wouldn't describe it as complex. It's actually very simple. Mm. You really only have the glass in front of you, some paint, and a camera. I, and I think I liked it for that simplicity, that it wasn't something that involved cells. Or I mean, at the time, what would be... Um, of alternatives would maybe be cutouts or cells and I couldn't stand the idea of all these layers to keep track of and cells to keep clean and, and animating in advance and all that sort of thing and so I liked the simplicity of it but it actually is very hard it's, it's not easy because you only have um, the image in front of you to refer to mm. when you're creating the next one because it's destroyed so every mm. image is destroyed as you move ahead and I think because I'm, I'm a little bit of a perfectionist, that was a way to keep that in check. That I, I, can't, I couldn't go back and fix anything yeah. unless, it, unless it was disastrous. When, when you saw the film, finally, and it was, there was a big mistake in it, then you would have to do it again. But often if it was just a little mistake, you go, well, I, I guess I'm going to have to live with that. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, it's another two weeks work or something like that. So I liked that aspect of it. But... Having said that, I don't think I would ever do it again because, well, mainly because it's something only one person can do. And I like working with Amanda, so that sort of would rule that out. And I actually now really appreciate the flexibility you have with computers. And it's, 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 I, I, it's hard to go back from, from that, even though the computer is a, a double-edged sword because it, it is a bottomless pit because you can just keep going and you can keep fixing anything you can zoom into detail so you really have to control yourself and be as loose as possible but which is hard it which is hard yeah so i, I like the, i like the intensity of the concentration of paint on glass or any kind of straight ahead under camera technique such as you know, stop motion would be the same or cutouts i, I like being locked in a room by myself focusing on one thing and i i, I still I'm attracted to that. I mean, I like editing for that reason. I like the the immersion in the in the project that that gives you. And Amanda, uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, a film that you worked on. I believe as a, a background and character artist, which was uh, Jill Harris's Joe. Oh yeah. Uh, which is a film I absolutely love. I think the the style here is is quite different from from the films that you've you've made with Wendy though. Uh, how's the experience of working on on someone else's vision compare to compare with working on your own films? Well, before I, I worked on uh, Jill's film, I was the animation director for a, a national film board educational film called The Reluctant Deckhand. So that was sort of my first introduction to dancing to somebody else's tune. Yeah. Um, and and it was a very good experience. I you know I mean all these years later I would approach it completely differently, but uh, I did that in cutouts. So moving on to Jill's film was uh, easy because I, I'm quite uh, conversant in cutouts, and uh, I really I really enjoyed Jill's film. She 
had a nice loose style. I loved the spirit of the thing, and um, it was a lot of fun because it was not, you know, cut out, cutouts can be so fussy, and uh, and there was a lot of movement in that film, and a lot of uh, it was it was it was fairly simple. We would animate on not on backgrounds, but just on a blue screen kind of thing, and then they would composite it together. So that was very liberating. You didn't have to worry about lighting or layers or all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So. Yeah, that was that was a pure pleasure. That one. It was actually at a, a really rotten time in my life. I had sick parents, and it was my little release to go to Vancouver and do some animating for a few days, and and then go back into the the fray again. So I've I've always felt really grateful to that project for keeping me sane. Oh, so that's quite. Is that a project quite dear to your heart then? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I think I think it really comes across in the film as well. You can see the the life that's been poured into that project. Yeah, and and he was a lovely man. Uh, Joe Fortes was a lovely man, and so I think that spirit kind of comes through it. But again, it, it's what Wendy was saying that to to be in a dark room with your tasks and just have that kind of solitude and that kind of concentration, it's quite wonderful and. Uh, it just simplifies everything so that you're just focused on this one thing. And shooting cutouts or anything under the camera has an element of performance to it as you're making decisions. I wouldn't call it on the fly, but... <laughs> slow motion on the fly. Slow motion on the fly. <laughs> yeah. You, so you have to be on in the same way that an actor has to be on. And uh, it's, a, it's a very creative process. And I love that. And now that we're talking about it, I'm quite missing it. Oh. <laughs> It's true, the performance thing, and well, animation is very much kind of, I'm sure you've heard this from other people, where we're actors in a way, as we animate characters, we, we are performing through them, or it's a kind of, I think animators in some ways are frustrated actors, but, but the under-camera thing is even more so, because you just have one chance to get it right, and you're, it's, it's sort of more muscle memory kind of movement. Unless you have a, a video assist, which pretty much everybody would now. Yeah. But I think when we were working, that was rarer. So you you didn't really know what you were achieving until you saw the film come back. But you'd have to kind of feel the movement. You sort of got a feel for moving something this amount will give me this speed of motion. And it, it just becomes an unconscious thing that you do, like a performance or yeah. like a sport playing the piano something like that yeah and it, i mean everything that you're saying here just it just illustrates what a uh, complex and amazing medium animation is the whole reason that i, that I wanted to uh, to make this show is uh, to try and get this across to people because i constantly uh, encounter this this attitude towards animation that it's somehow that it's throwaway or that it's just for children or it's a, a trivial medium I mean, have, have you, have, have either of you come across this kind of a, this kind of attitude before? Oh, all the time. Yeah, it's it's disappointing, but it's just obviously people are used to having watched cartoons as children, and they think it's all for kids. And and more frustratingly, I think there's an expectation that things are going to be sweet and cute, mm. and um, they're just missing out. At, with that in mind, we, we have a little festival that we do here because we had a bunch of friends saying, you know, how can we see your work and what is it you do? And so we started a little local festival where we show animated films one night in the bleakest, most wretched part of winter. <laughs> and everybody comes out and we have a party afterwards and it's really fun. And the audience has, uh, 
they've become a really well-educated audience, and they mm-hmm. ask smart questions, and they're engaged, and they appreciate the work, and it's extremely satisfying. At least on a local level, we've been able to solve that problem. <laughs> <laughs> larger world not so much <laughs> yeah it's uh, i've i've heard about this this uh, festival the bleak midwinter festival isn't it and uh, every every time i read about it i wish i could make it over to calgary and uh, and come it sounds like the sort of thing uh, that you should have everywhere it's well, you you could, well you're most welcome yeah. <laughs> oh, thank, thank you very much if i uh, if i ever if i ever can make it over i'll uh, i'll drop by and try yeah, and... but we all appreciate that you're championing it as well because it's um it is a little bit misunderstood but it's also as you know it is i think people are attracted to animation or to go into animation because it is very complete as an art form because we get to be actors we get to be dancers sometimes we get to work with music it's a it's a visual art uh we can be writers it's it's like a little miniature theater. It's like putting on a show, but you get to control every aspect of it. So that it's 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 extremely satisfying, but it's also really onerous, and it's that combination. I think that well, it, it has to yeah, it has to be satisfying, or you'd never do it. No, no. Well, it's it's great to hear that you're obviously big animation fans yourselves. Are there any animators in in particular who you're big fans of, or, or who you see as influences on your own work? Tons of them. <laughs> Do any spring to mind? Sure, just about everybody would say Yuri Norstein is certainly one of oh, my. Oh yeah. Love, love, love his work. And actually, speaking of uh, not being taken seriously, uh, a friend of mine in art school was asked to do a presentation in art history, I think it was, and so she said, "I'm going to show Yuri Norstein's Tale of Tales," oh. and that. <laughs> sort of said, oh, you know, animation, it'll be cute, it'll be lighter, this will be a nice change. And, of course, they were all blown out of the water. <laughs> so she, too, did her little bit for changing attitudes about animation. I mean, I mean, certainly, when I started in paint on glass, Caroline Leaf was definitely the trailblazer for for that technique. Yeah. Um, and, and Jean-Luigi Tocofondo, uh, we adore his work. It, the, the looseness, the painterly quality is fantastic. We really like uh, Eugene Fedorenko. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, the Village of Idiots and oh, yeah. Igor Cavalio. Igor Cavalio, yeah. I, you know, there's just so many films you admire. I mean, some of them that have absolutely nothing to do with our yeah. work or specifically, but just pe- people that you just admire, their sensibility or humor or... Yeah, it's so many things to admire, but for different reasons, I guess. My sincerest thanks to Wendy Tilby and Amanda Forbis for their fascinating insights into the medium of animation and for the invite to Calgary. You can find out more about Wendy, Amanda and their work at their website, tilbyforbis.com. Well, the roundup is over. It's the cowboy's last ride. He'll sleep neath the stars. On the prairie, so I You've been listening to Spoiler with me, Andy Golding. On the next Spoiler Animation special, I'll be talking to Canadian artist, writer, director and animator John Weldon, director of the Oscar-winning short Special Delivery and pioneer of the technique known as recyclamation. One of my good friends, who's also a very good filmmaker, said to me, To be, I hate that film. It makes you think. <laughs> You can find out more about Spoiler and listen to our past shows at spoilerpodcast.co.uk 
or find us on Facebook, Twitter, Acast and iTunes. Also, check out my list of a thousand and one animated shorts you must see. You can find the link at spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Spoiler is produced by Johnny Hoare and is recorded in the studios of Siren FM in the heart of the beautiful cathedral city of Lincoln. Oh.